Listen, it's so good to see you all today. Thank you so much for being here. I know that today is an extremely exciting day. Uh, we have so many people that are going to be declaring for the very first time that they are now followers of Jesus Christ. So we're excited about being able to participate in that later. Um, but if you're here for the first time, we're mixing it up just a little bit today. Uh, we're actually moving the sermon to the front part of the gathering. And then we're going to do the bulk of our worship and baptisms all as one big celebration at the end of the gathering, okay? So it's going to be a little bit rotated, mixed up for you, uh, but this is not what we normally do, but I think you'll understand later when you see that we have 21 people getting baptized today uh, while we're doing this. So I want to tell you a quick story about this. Um, on Thursday, one of the things that I do um, on Tuesdays and Thursdays is uh, I get my cardio in by prayer walking our campus and, um, and I was out there on Thursday right in front of the sign, and as I was praying, I knew that our number was 14. And I kid you not, this is, it was just so neat to me. Uh, but I, I was praying, asking God, I was like, Lord, uh, wouldn't it be awesome to see seven more? And about an hour later, Brian Schuler comes walking through the offices, and he tells us, hey, there's 21 people signed up uh, as of today. And we're, I'm thinking, Lord, you, you literally just answered the prayer I prayed not even an hour ago. So it was really cool for me because there are moments in life where you wonder if God even hears your prayers. I mean, we've all been there. And you feel like you've been asking God and asking God and asking God over and over and over again to, to work. And, uh, and you just don't see it. Um, and then there's times where you literally feel like you just said something for no reason. And then the Lord answers it. And he just, it just overwhelms your heart. So my heart's full. It's... Uh, a heart of gratitude this morning because I'm elated at what God is doing here. And by the way, we didn't just uh, pause baptisms throughout the month of August or July so that we could get 21. <laughs> um, and, and what we actually did is we continued to baptize as we normally would. We just emphasized this, and the Lord has been so good uh, to allow us to be able to participate in this today. Um, I want to go ahead and say this too. Many of you know, but next week we have an interest meeting uh, for those of you who are interested in traveling to Israel with us. We'll do that right after the gathering. Uh, there's only a few spots available. Uh, so if you plan on going or at least want that information, you need to go ahead and sign up. Try to do so today on the app. You can do that through the website as well. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah, we're going to be in chapter 29, okay? The book of Jeremiah, chapter 29. We've been walking through a series called We Are. And what we've been doing is looking at who we are as a church. And there's four pillars that we've kind of focused on throughout this series. We say we want to be a church that loves God. We want to be a church that loves one another, loves the church. We want to be a church that loves the city. And we want to be a church that loves the world. That's who we are as a church. These aren't our values. These are just literally things that we feel like as a church body that are important to us. To love God, love each other as the church, love the city, love the world. And today we're going to be talking about what it looks like to be a church that loves the city. Okay, so we're focused on our city. Now when I say our city, I'm not talking about Stockbridge. I'm not talking about uh, McDonough. I'm talking about really all of South Atlanta because I know that there are people in this room that come from Covington and Conyers and Jackson and Hampton. So you come from all over the place, right? Uh, so don't think I'm neglecting your city when I talk specifically maybe about McDonough Stockbridge, which is where our address is, all right? I know that we have um, a church that expands beyond the influence of just our specific city that we are addressed in. So we're going to talk about what it means to be a church that loves the city, but we've been answering this question. 
What's keeping us from doing that? Like, what's keeping us from loving God? And we dove into that in week one. What's keeping us from loving each other as the church? We talked about that last week. Today, we're going to talk about what's keeping us from loving the city around us. So Jeremiah chapter 29 is where we'll be. And as you're finding that, I want you to know that the prophet Jeremiah, he has his stethoscope to the heart of God. And he's listening to the heartbeat of God. And he's taking that message, the message of God, and he's relaying it to the people of God. That's what's happening here in Jeremiah. Um, he is listening to God's heartbeat, and he's relaying this message to God's people. What you need to know is the Babylonians, they had come in, and they had taken God's people, the Israelites, captive. So now they have left their homeland, and they're now in uh, Babylon, and they're living a life that they didn't choose to live for themselves. I mean, think about it. They were uprooted from a place uh, that, that was familiar to them. It was their home. Not only were they uprooted from there, but that's where they were comfortable. That's where they were secure. Like they, they knew people in their own environment. That's where they drew uh, their sense of confidence from. This was their homeland, but now they've been taken captive away from their homeland, and they're in this, quote, foreign land known as Babylon. And Babylon, it has a, a pagan king, King Nebuchadnezzar. We'll call him King Neb for short today, right? All right, so you got King Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king. And because of a pagan king, you also have a pagan culture and community that's around this king. So you have a sin-infested king, you have a sin-infested city, and now the people of God were taken from their place of comfort, moved to this sin-infested city, and they're going to be told to live there. And they're going to be told to live on mission there. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Jeremiah writes this letter to them to communicate one very important truth, and that is this. You can live... You, you can live for God in a city that has turned against him. Let me, let me start this morning by saying, those of you who have been old school McDonough folks, you've been here for a long, long time. You've been in Henry County for 20 plus years, and you've seen some of the changes that Henry County has gone through. And you know that as it has grown in population, those people are sinners, and it has also become more sin infested. And you're concerned about that. You look around you and you see that your neighborhood isn't the same that it used to be. You see that the people that are composing and making up McDonald's, they're not the same as they used to be. Maybe you're concerned about crime. Maybe you're concerned you know, about congestion of the streets, whatever the case may be. But you know that when people move in, they bring their sin with them, their baggage with them. And all of a sudden, what used to be a quiet old town has now become busy and full of sin and full of the things that come with it. And maybe for you, you're going to need to be encouraged this morning to think that the people of God can live for God in a city that's turned against him. In fact, I would argue that that is the entire biblical narrative, that God moves people into cities so that they can be light and salt in those cities so that more people might come to know him. So it really works polar opposite of what we sometimes think. What we sometimes think is, well, when people move in, we're going to move out. When congestion takes place, we want peace and we want to be out here in the quiet areas of the community. And what Jesus is going to show us today is that's not necessarily how he always works. Doesn't mean he doesn't work that way, just it's not necessarily how he always works. And I want to go ahead and say this too. This was never Paul's church planting strategy throughout the entire book of Acts. Paul never went to the rural parts to reach people. He always went to the busy areas so that he could have more impact in those specific locations. He leveraged the gifts and the skills that God had made him or given him to make the greatest impact for the kingdom. 
And he knew to make the greatest impact for the kingdom, he needed to be among the people, not separated from them. So we're going to see all of that today. We're going to begin in Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 7. It says this, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders. All right, he puts that in there because he wants to put emphasis on how bad the situation was. Yes, the letter's going to make it to the elders, but it's the surviving elders. Why? Because a lot of them did not make it from their route from Jerusalem to Babylon. That's how bad things are. It says, of the exiles and the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. What's going on here? We're, we're being told that this is, uh, the, the picture's being painted and what we're learning is it's not a pretty sight. The people of God have lost everything. The people of God, they've lost their homes, their place of security and comfort. They, they've seen their city, Jerusalem, is now in ruins. Not only that, but their economy has disintegrated. Their people are now enslaved. The, the picture that's being painted for the people of God is not a pretty one. If you look closely, what you're going to see in verses 2, or in verse 2, is that King Nebuchadnezzar, he wanted, to strain this, he wanted to strain the people of God as much as he could. In fact, he didn't leave not one hardworking individual behind. He made sure that the hard workers were on board. The innovators, he wanted to make sure that they were not going to stay in Jerusalem. The intellectual people, he took them from the city as well. He wanted to strain everything good out of Jerusalem. So Jeremiah, he sends this letter. But what you and I need to know is the letter didn't actually come from Jeremiah. The letter comes from God. It might have been Jeremiah who penned it. It might have been Jeremiah who spoke it. It might have been Jeremiah who formed it and put the stamp on the envelope and put it in the mail. But the letter is coming from God. So the question is, what does God say? Look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts. That's how we know it's from God. The God of Israel. To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile." And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So God is commanding his people to live in the city as if they were living at home. He says, I want you to plant your lives there. He says, I want you to get married there. He says, I want you to start families there. And I want you to grow old and be grandparents there. And then he says, I want you to multiply there and do not decrease. You do understand that our commission by God as followers of Jesus is to multiply ourselves and, and to make disciples. Like that, that's what we're here to do. And I find it interesting that he even put that in this text. He wants his children to live in such a way that it will lead to the city's flourishing, he says. Because in its welfare, when it flourishes, you will flourish. It's for your welfare as well. Do you know what God is really after? What God's really after here in Jeremiah is God simply wants his children to love and obey him. That's all he wants. 
He wants his children, the people of God, to love and obey him. See, their love for God will be evidenced by their obedience to his plan for their lives. And he's saying, I know that this is not the life that you have chosen for yourself. And I know that any of you, if you could, you would pack your bags and go back to Jerusalem tomorrow. In fact, I know that you don't like living among this sin-infested people, that it, it kind of gives you a little bit of the ibby-jibbies. Like, I get it. But at the end of the day, I want to see if you, as my children, are going to love and obey me. Or will you choose your own individual plan for your life? See, it's important that the people of God know that it's the hands of God that are orchestrating the details of their lives. This, just, this did not happen just by happenstance. No, God is doing the work. And if we follow the desires of our own heart, what, what God knows and what we need to know is when we, when we follow the desires of our own heart, we, we repel the favor of God. And God wants what's best for his people. And what's best for his people is to live in the center of his will and to, to live life the way that he has designed it. So God wants the city to thrive, he wants the city to flourish, and he has sent his people to make that happen. Church family, the same is true for you and I in South Atlanta. The same is true for us. God wants our city to thrive. He wants our cities to flourish. We might not like the booming growth or the congestion in the streets or the ever-changing culture of South Atlanta, but according to God, he wants our city to thrive and flourish. And guess what? He sent us as his people to make that happen. So the question becomes this. What is keeping us from loving our city? What's keeping us as the people of God from loving the city that God has planted us in the way that he has called us to love them? I believe there's two things. The first one is this. We don't have a God-sized vision. It all begins to me with a God-sized vision. We got to see things the way that God sees them. Certainly here in Jeremiah 29, the people of God didn't see things necessarily the way that God see, had seen them. They had, they had to be influenced a little bit by the prophet Jeremiah so that they would see things the way that God did. In verse five it says, build houses and live, and live in them. What is he saying? Root yourself in the city. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Don't only root yourself there, but plan to stay for a little while. This isn't a temporary move. It's not, you're not merely transit, transient. If you're transient, you're, gonna, you're just going to kind of make time pass by until you go to the next place. And you'll never live as a missionary there. He says, I want you to take root. I want you to stay there a while. Take wives and have sons and daughters. I want you to start a family. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Have a vision to be grandparents there. Multiply there and do not decrease. So God's instructions for the people of God is, is clear. He wants them rooted in the city. He wants them to see what the city could be and should be if the people of God would live as salt and light among the sinners in their city. I love how Philip Ryken, uh, one commentator, he says it like this. The quote will be on your screen. He says, no doubt, when the captives discuss their sojourn in Babylon, they use words like abandoned or banished or condemned to describe what God has done to them. But that is not how God saw things. He viewed the exile as a mission. Literally, he said, what he said was, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have sent you. Nebuchadnezzar did not take them to Babylon. God sent them there. The exiles were not captives. 
Instead, they were missionaries. And that is a completely different way of viewing the world around us. You live in this city as a missionary to this particular context. Wherever you work, you're a missionary to that context. Whatever neighborhood you live in, you're a missionary to that context. You are to get the gospel message of Jesus Christ to the people who need it most. Now, can you imagine what we could be if we would love the place that God has planted us? But let's be honest. Many of us in this room, and I know sometimes I'm included, it is so much easier to complain about what's happening out there than it is to embrace it. It really is. We get frustrated when sin enters the city. We get frustrated as we see that the depravity of man begin to slowly take over the city around us. So the question you might be asking is, why should I even love this city? Like, in fact, I can't stand it. Like, I see the destruction of the buildings. I see the ruins that are happening around us. I see the morale of our city changing. Why would I love it? The reason you and I should love the city is because God loves the city. And that should be reason enough. See, a God-sized vision loves those who are far from God. John 3.16, the most popular verse in probably all of Scripture, it says, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son. You know that word world literally means all that's broken. God sent his Son to all that is broken. God sent his Son to those who are far from him. God sent his son to those who opposed the things of God. And as you look around McDonough, Stockbridge, Hampton, Covington, Conyers, and surrounding areas, Locust Grove, surely you can see that our city is filled with people who are far from God. And just like God sent Jesus to people far from God, guess what? Now he's sending me and you. This is what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is all about. What does it say? You are reconciled to God because of Christ. And now you're called into the ministry of reconciliation. This city is our mission field. And as our mission field, we should have a heart that wants to reach it. See, our witness will be ineffective if we don't love where we live. And for some of you, this should feel like a punch in the gut. Like th this city, our, our, our ministry and our mission to this city will be ineffective if you don't love where you live. For some of us, my prayer is that you will fall in love again with the city that God has planted you in. This is our, uh, this is our assignment, church family. This is it. This is our divine assignment. To love the city that God loves and to live on mission where God has planted us. That's it. That's what we're here to do. You and I, we are here in McDonough, Stockbridge, wherever you live, to love the city that God loves and not only that, but to live on mission where God has you planted. So my prayer for us today is we as a church would develop a God-sized vision. A vision to see things in this area the way that God sees them. So the first thing that's keeping us from loving our city is we don't have a God-sized vision. The second thing is we don't have an accurate understanding of the gospel. You know, a misunderstanding of the gospel will hinder us from loving the city the way that God wants us to love it. And for many of us, that's the reason we don't like where we live. This is the reason we don't love where we live. This is the reason we complain and bicker and whine about what's going on in the community around us. It's because we don't have an accurate understanding of the gospel. Let me explain that. I'm going to break that down into two different segments this morning. First, we don't have an accurate understanding of the gospel because we see the gospel as more about what we get than what we give. 
We all do this. And that's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is not about what we get. The, the gospel is about what we give. And here Jeremiah is rendering them to be faithful subjects to King Nebuchadnezzar. And you got to put this in perspective. King Nebuchadnezzar was not a godly you know, saint. He wasn't a follower of Jesus. He was a pagan king. And here the people of God are placing themselves as subjects to the pagan king. So let's just assume that everyone in their community back then in Babylon had a vote. The people of God didn't vote for that candidate, yet they still served that candidate. They still placed themselves in a, a position to where they said, listen, I am here so that our city can thrive, so that our city can flourish. And even though we might not necessarily agree on things concerning the Bible, I'm still going to place myself as a subject to you because when I do, I become salt and light to you. I promise you, your witness will go further with people you don't agree with when you serve them than it would if you continue to resist them and keep your distance from them. This is the reason we embrace our obligation, our spiritual mandate to pray for the, the, the specific leaders of our community every single day, whether we voted for them or not. We are required by God to love them, to support them, to pray for them, and to try our best to lift them up and to be the light of the gospel that maybe they need. I take that task very seriously. In fact, I just joined the board with the city of Stockbridge. And I'm gonna be honest with you. I don't have the time. But you know why I did it? I did it because I felt like, man, if I can help take the gospel and influence these people with it into the city of Stockbridge, why would I say no to that? I want to put myself at a seat in a position where I can speak the gospel truth into a room that maybe doesn't have it. So maybe you can do the same. You can see about what you can give to the city rather than what you get out of the city. The best thing that you can give our city is your loving witness. That's it. Man, the best thing that we can give our city is our loving witness to point men and women everywhere to Jesus as Lord and Savior. So the gospel is not about what we can get. It's about what we give. And second misunderstanding that we have is the gospel does not move away from people. The gospel moves towards people. The gospel doesn't move away from people. The gospel moves toward people. You understand that moving toward people is the way of Jesus. Right here, you hear me? Moving towards people is the way of Jesus. Over and over and over and over again in the Bible, we see Jesus moving toward the mess, not away from it. A blind man beside the road, Jesus stops and attends to him. A woman that's caught in adultery, Jesus stops and attends to her. A lame man lying beside a pool, Jesus stops and attends to him. Tax collectors, prostitutes, Pharisees, Sadducees, whatever the case may be, what does God the Father or God the Son do? He stops and he moves towards those particular people. Jesus stepped into their situation and he showed them that his love was more powerful than their mess. That's what Jesus wanted them to see. He came, the Bible says, to seek and to save that which was lost. Church, God created around us a perfect world, a, a world that did not have any sin in it at all. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they were in perfect harmony with God. It was not until Genesis chapter 3 that sin entered the world when Adam and Eve took it upon themselves to sit on the throne of their lives rather than let, and letting God occupy his rightful place. And you and I are guilty of the exact same sin that Adam and Eve 
had committed as well. Men, like myself and you, we deliberately rebelled against God. And instead of God retreating and running from man, he ran into the mess by sending Jesus to us. Listen, male Mercer, Jesus doesn't run from your junk. You need to know that today. Doesn't matter the extent of your sin. Jesus didn't flee from that. He doesn't hide from your hurt. He didn't dip out on your difficulty. He isn't shocked by your sin. He didn't even retreat by your rebellion. What did Jesus do? Jesus modeled for us what this type of living looks like. He moved into the neighborhood of humanity. By the way, when, when Jesus came to earth, he moved into the most dangerous part of the neighborhood, the Middle East, and he gave his life entirely to them. Entirely, holding nothing back. He's committed to their good, and he even was committed so much that it led to his own death. Jesus was arrested, he was crucified, and he was killed by the very neighbors that he came to save. That's what Jesus did. And get this, the cross then enables us not only to be saved, but to be empowered to demonstrate the same kind of radical, countercultural, crazy love to our neighbors that Jesus has already demonstrated to us. That's the gospel. When you and I understand that we are the ones that Jesus should have been fleeing from, but he didn't, he ran towards us. It makes it much easier for the ones that we want to retreat from. It makes it much easier for us to move towards them. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. See, ma'am, sir, maybe you're here today and you came to church and you thought, you know what, you don't know all the baggage I brought with me. You don't know all the deep, dark secrets that are in my heart. In fact, if they flash on the screen behind you, I would be extremely embarrassed because I'm aware of how pitifully far short I fall from the glory of God. And maybe what you needed to hear today is that Jesus sees every single thing that you're aware of and more. And yet, instead of retreating and running away from you, no, he actually stepped into the earth and ran towards you. And not only that, but he did everything necessary for you. See, it, it, take, it, took the, it took the sacrifice of a spotless lamb to die for your sins so that you could be reconciled to God. But because you're not spotless, Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you were supposed to live, but you didn't. And then he went and died the death that was yours to die because you couldn't live the way that you were supposed to. And that's the beauty of the gospel. It's no matter where you're at this morning, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. No, no matter how much weight you're carrying and baggage you have in your life and all the things that you're aware of that you've done, Jesus still pursues you. And maybe for the first time, you have recognized, you know what, you mean to tell me I don't have to fix my own behavior? You mean to tell me I don't have to clean myself up? You mean to tell me that I can come to Christ just like I am because it doesn't matter who I am, it just matters about my surrender to him as king of my life? The answer is yes. You can come to God just like you are, and he'll accept you just like you are. Why? Because he's already done everything necessary for you to be restored to the Father through the sending of the Son on the cross, where your sin was placed on his back. And when you cry out to faith in him, he exchanges all your sin for all of his righteousness. And here's the beauty of the gospel. Now, after you've come to know Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees that you've been bought by the precious blood of his Son, he doesn't see all your misfits and all your failures and all your disappointments and all of your sin. No, he sees the righteous blood of Jesus that atones for your life and bought you back for your own redemption. That's what he sees. So, ma'am, sir, I want to encourage you, if you came here today and you do not know Christ, maybe 
you can give your life to Jesus. And here's the beauty of this. In just a moment, we're going to baptize these 21 people who are going public before a watching world saying, I am a follower of Jesus. Not because of anything that I have done, but because everything that Jesus has done for me. And now as a follower of Christ, I'm telling the whole world that he's now my Savior and I'm going to live for him and walk with him from this day forward. 21 people are about to do that. And guess what? Ma'am, sir, we're going to give you the opportunity to do that too. And you're probably thinking, well, I might get my hair wet and I didn't come prepare for that. Listen, we have hair dryers, we have t-shirts, we have shorts, we have everything you need to take care of you if you want to make your faith public today. If you want to come to know Jesus and you want to go public with it today, we want to help you not leave here in any disobedience. We want to help you get baptized even today. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, these 21 people, they're going to make their way out of the room. And at the same time, our prayer team's going to make their way up front. Remember, the service is not over, so for those of you who usually leave right when the preaching's done, I'm going to ask you to stay, okay? We're actually going to sing in just a moment, and we're going to baptize in just a moment. We're right on time, so everything is good, but our prayer team is coming forward. And this invitation, if you will, is for two people. First, those of you who don't know Jesus and you want to know him, we want to talk to you about him. We want to help you take your next step in meeting Jesus, okay? And then secondly, it's not only for them, but it's for those of you maybe you know Christ, but your salvation is not on, or your baptism's not on the right side of your salvation. Baptism is after you come to know Jesus and it's by immersion. So maybe you're here today and you're thinking, you know what, I got baptized when I was nine, but I didn't come to know Christ until I was 18. Maybe for you, today's, you, you want to get baptism on the right side of your salvation. It's just like my wedding ring. I wear this after my, my wedding. Why? Because now I'm married and I'm declaring before the watching world that I'm off the market. Not that any of you care, but I'm off the market, right? And I belong to my wife. And the same thing with baptism. Baptism's after conversion, after you place your faith and trust in Jesus. It's a symbol to tell the world you are now a follower of Christ. So this invitation's for two people. Those of you who don't know Jesus and want to come to know him. And second, those of you who do know Jesus but have not been faithful and obedient in baptism, we would love to talk to you as well. And I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand right where you are. And as you stand, if you're one of those two people, I want to invite you up front. I invite you to come up front. If you are here and you want to give your life to Jesus, we have people that are here to talk to you. It's always, it always takes one. The first one to step out, you're the hero, okay? But if you're here today and you want to give your life to Jesus, you are tired of running from God, you're tired of the mess that you've created, and you're ready to lay yourself down at the feet of Christ, and you want to surrender your life to Him, we're going to go ahead and invite you up. We have ladies and men that are up here to talk specifically to you. And also, if you're here today, and you say, you know what, Trey, I want to get baptized. I did not come prepare for this, but this is going to be the coolest experience of my life. Ready or not, I want to obey Jesus, and I'm going to get baptized today. If you would like to do that, we're going to invite you down as well. You can go ahead and move.
Hey, can we put our hands together for those who are moving? And Maybe you're sitting there today, we're not going to manipulate this, but maybe you're sitting there today and you're thinking, you know what, it scares me to death to walk down alone. Grab someone's hand and say, hey, will you walk down there with me? Uh, the biggest desire of our heart is that you don't leave not knowing Jesus. And secondly, that you don't leave in disobedience to him. We just want you to love and obey him. That's it. So if you're here and you'd like to give your life to Christ, or maybe you're here and you're ready to follow him faithfully in baptism, we would love to have you come for more. Anybody else? Can we put our hands together? Thank, thank God for what he's doing. Got some coming from the balcony. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask our prayer team, those who are still left, to stay up front. If you want to move during the songs, you're welcome to. We're just going to go into worship. But let, let's worship like this. Let's worship out of an overflow of the gratitude of our heart for what Jesus is doing, not only in our own individual lives, but also what he's doing in the life of our church. Guys, listen, this, this, after today, there's almost 50 people that have been baptized over the course of the past month. That is phenomenal. That's phenomenal. And that's what it's all about. We just want to live our lives in a way that brings some honor and brings some glory. And let's sing to him as a result of the gratitude of our own heart.